We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, the Wandri and Boonrong people of the Kula Nation, on whose land we stand today. We pay our respects to elders past and present. We recognise the depth of Indigenous culture and their deep connection to land and waters. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome everyone to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry, where we talk about news and current events from a feminist perspective. My name's Leah and it's um it's just me this week. Uh, Carly is sick, but I wanted to do an episode anyway, especially because today is February the 17th and it is literally this day last year that we recorded our first episode, which is pretty cool. It's also the first time that I met Zach from Ozpol Snack Pod. It's the first time that I met his dog, so it's also like it's also Dante Day, so that's pretty important. For me, yeah. Anyway, uh, so rather than just have me, like, talk at you, which will will absolutely be strange and weird, so instead I am going to play you some interviews from over the last year, ones that have really, like, lived rent-free in my brain. Uh, first off, we're going to hear from Shana from the Let Us Speak campaign. Then we will hear from Dr. Bianca Philibon, who is a senior lecturer, DECRA fellow in criminology at Melbourne Uni, researches sexual violence and harassment, gender and sexuality, and is quite the legend. And then finally, we will hear from, well, this is an interview that we haven't had a chance to play yet because it just it keeps falling through. Um, but it's an interview with Anna from Slutwalk Munich, and it's really cool and interesting. We're talking about Slutwalk and the the movement and stuff, so it's pretty cool. So yeah, so first up we have uh, Shana Bremner from the Let Us Speak campaign. So yeah, recent amendments to the Judicial Proceedings Reports Act make it an offence to disclose the identity of a victim survivor within the media. This has raised concerns in the community around victim survivors' rights and ability to speak openly about their own sexual abuse stories. These amendments sought to address other issues within this Act, but inadvertently run the risk of silencing victim survivors. Under this legislation, victim survivors are required to prove that they consent, they are over the age of 18, and that it is appropriate in all circumstances for the identity to be disclosed in any form of media. The incredibly broad nature of this provision risks the rights of victim survivors to self-identify and speak out. With me, I have Shana from NRAPE on campus. She's also a partner in the amazing Let Us Speak campaign. Welcome, Shana. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, I just wanted to speak with you about essentially like the implications of this legislation on survivors. The, the legislation's had just this incredibly wide-ranging impact on individual survivors who... You know, sexual assault is a crime of power and it takes power away from somebody. What this legislation did was actually give it a double whammy. Not only did the survivors have their power stripped from them as a result of the assault, this law then gagged them from ever being able to speak out when their perpetrator had been found guilty. So it effectively meant the perpetrators had an additional level of protection. And for many of the survivors that we've worked with over the past few years, they had already spoken out in the media. It actually meant that the work that they had done or the work they were doing as public advocates now became a crime. Yeah. Do you think there are any correlations be between Pell being convicted in 2018 and this legislation being drafted in 2019 and finally passing in 2020? I would never want to chalk up to malice anything that can be explained by sheer incompetence, but I think one thing that is very obvious is either that the people involved in drafting and passing the laws, either didn't do their jobs properly and actually read it and consider what it meant for individual survivors, or there's some other bigger issue at play here. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think that they actually spoke with any survivors when they were drafting this? It's quite clear that they didn't, and that's not unusual. There's very, very rarely any sort of consultation with survivors at all when it comes to any laws that actually involve them. And even when we do see some level of consultation, we see those suggestions, reforms, ideas from survivors actively ignored, which we've recently seen in Queensland um, with some legal reforms up there in relation to sexual assault. 
it's just not an area where they bother to consult with the people who will be most impacted. Mm, how frustrating. Um, do you also think that there will be um, an impact on people who have experienced sexual assault actually reporting their assault to police? Definitely. That means if you report to the police, they somehow get a conviction. You have been effectively silenced from ever speaking out ever again about what happened to you. The chilling effect on individual survivors is phenomenal. It just means that you'll either get people that won't come forward at all, or you'll get people who choose not to go down a criminal justice route because they want the ability to speak out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me more about the Let Us Speak campaign and how can we support you going forward? So the Let Us Speak campaign follows the Let Her Speak campaign that we ran in Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Um, effectively two different campaigns, slightly different names. So the Let Her Speak campaign started in Tasmania um, because there was a gag law in place there that meant that individual survivors couldn't speak up using their real face and names. And we were working with a couple of survivors down there at the time and the disempowerment effect on them was incredible. So we had campaigned to change that law. It also existed in the Northern Territory. We campaigned there and got that law changed. And as those changes were going through, Victoria very quietly in February of this year passed this law. Mm. Um, what we would like to see is that survivors can speak up whenever they want in all jurisdictions. It's not a matter of being individual state law. No matter what happened to you, no matter where it happened to you, you should have the ability to speak out about it and not risk going to prison. What we'd really like to see everybody do is get behind the campaign and listen to the survivors when they speak. It's one thing for them to be able to speak. It's another thing for them to be able to be heard. We have the GoFundMe at the moment, which has gone gangbusters. We're incredibly grateful for the amazing generosity at the moment. I think we've raised over $60,000 and that will enable probably six individual survivors to get court orders to allow them to tell their story without facing prosecution. It's around $10,000 per person to be able to get those court orders. And we're hoping that we can raise money for enough people to be able to tell their stories before the end of the year as we possibly can. So donating to the GoFundMe, we know that, you know, things are tough for everybody right now with the coronavirus. A lot of people have lost their jobs, but every cent helps. And also just speaking up about it and talking about how unfair it is that people are effectively being punished for being raped. Yeah. Yeah. How, how very unlike the judicial system to do that to survivors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something that it doesn't do in any, you know, any other area of the law over and over again. It's it's survivors of sexual assault who end up getting the short end of the stick, no matter what. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us. No problem. Thank you very much for speaking about it. We really appreciate it. No, good luck with the rest of the campaign. We'll be doing our best for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Since we spoke with Shana, the gag laws in Victoria have been repealed and replaced with Jamie's Law, named after Jamie Lee Page, who was the first victim survivor to be affected by these laws. Thanks to Nina and Shana's Let Us Speak campaign, the capacity to tell our stories are back in the hands of victim survivors, which is, thank you. Like, it's an incredible, it's been an incredible campaign. However, the laws are still in effect in the Northern Territory, so they still need our support. Please go to their fundraising page and donate what you can, even if it's just a dollar. Like, every little bit helps. And yeah, can we stop silencing victim survivors and maybe start believing survivors. Let's just go into the next interview. Please enjoy me and Carly interviewing Dr. Bianca Philiborn about her research and about the criminal justice system. Um, and please enjoy Carly getting so excited to ask a question that she forgets to introduce Bianca. It's super fucking cute. Enjoy. Um, as, as a research nerd, I would actually, if you're comfortable, I would love for you to like give a brief summary of like what you're researching now and what projects you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the main project that I'm working on right now um, is a government-funded project that's looking at um, justice responses to street-based harassment. So I've been um, yeah, interviewing people across Victoria and New South Wales about their experiences of street harassment and how it's impacted on them. Um, but more importantly, like, how do they understand the concept of, of justice and what types of responses would they like to see put in place to help achieve a sense of justice in response to street harassment? Because um, I think at the moment, particularly in Australia, we have very little um, policy or you know, practice-based responses around street harassment. 
Um, at the same time, particularly internationally, we've seen a lot of movement around, um, you know, introducing um, criminal legislation and on the spot fines for street harassment, uh, which on the face of it seems quite positive, but we've actually never asked um, people who experience harassment, well, what would you like the response to be? Mm. And as we know, and as we're going to get into, the formal criminal justice system has a terrible track record when it comes to responding to sexual and gender-based violence. Yeah. So I think there are huge question marks around one, whether that type of response is going to be effective in relation to street harassment. Um, the other thing that we know, and as the international Black Lives Matter movement has, has shown and like really brought to the forefront this year, is that criminal justice responses disproportionately impact on uh, people of colour and other minority groups. So I think it's, you know, doesn't take a genius to work out that if we're introducing things like on the spot fines for street harassment, we're probably going to be disproportionately impacting you know, men of colour, people experiencing homelessness, um, people with mental health um, challenges and, and so forth. So yeah, the, I guess the idea of the project is to try and um, develop some victim-centred uh, insights and perspectives into how we can best respond um, to street harassment. Um, so that's taking up most of my time, but I'm also doing some work around um, harassment for um, people using rideshare and taxi um, services and another project that's been looking at sexual violence at music festivals in Australia. So oh, yeah, lots of different yeah. things keeping me mm. busy. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I, that, the on the spot fine, just what, does there have to be a police officer witness it? Like I, exactly. I don't, that is just ludicrous, but yeah. Sure. Exactly. And, and that, that's a big part of the, the challenge, right? I mean, mm. harassment is incredibly difficult to respond to anyway. Like as so many people have said to me, like, you know, someone's driven past in their car and they've yelled, you know, screamed something out at me. What am I going to do? Like go to the police and say a man with brown hair in a red car drove past. I don't really know what he looked like. I don't know what his license <laughs> plate number was yeah. you know like it's yeah literally unless there is a police officer standing there who happens to witness what happened it's very difficult to respond to in that kind of way mm. and again let's face it the type of person who's going to engage in harassment when police are around it probably faces some of those challenges that we you know just mm. just mentioned um it's very unlikely that it's you know going to be the middle-aged businessman doing something a bit creepy on public transport for example who's going to get caught yeah. in that kind of way yeah. yeah yeah absolutely the types of harassment that are often the most insidious are the ones that i feel like especially a police officer who was a man would be like they were just being friendly exactly so it yeah just exactly so much of it is normalized it's really context dependent mm. and it can be really subtle um mm. and that's the stuff that's really really difficult to call out and probably stuff that would be impossible to actually legislate against right like mm. you, know, mm. you can't introduce a law against looking at someone or having a conversation with someone in public mm. right and those things can absolutely be harassment but you know, I think there would be huge civil rights implications, for example, in saying it's now illegal to stare at someone for more than 10 seconds or something, right? Like, mm. it's, it's just not behaviour that can be dealt with in, in that kind of way. But mm. also, like you touched on before, we saw in COVID with cops using their own discretion that, you know, it was people of colour and it was homeless people mm -hmm. and it was sex workers that were most impacted by those COVID laws. So that, yeah, the, the police who are actually are a massive part of the problem and especially that whole using their own discretion. And then we've got something like IBAC that is useless, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Using that as, as an example, what are some of the other barriers, both legally and in your own personal opinion, to enforcing these kind of laws? Yeah, so we know that there's huge barriers to enforcing laws against um, sexual offences and, and sexual harassment. Um, so firstly, it might be helpful if I say a little bit about the legislation that's in place mm. um, across Australia. So if we're talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, we, we actually do have a suite of legislation, both federally and um, across states and territories. So the main piece of legislation is the Sex Discrimination Act. So that's a piece of federal legislation that was introduced um, back in 1984 which is the year I was born so good year all round. Um, <laughs> um, so that was introduced to um, ensure that Australia was meeting its human rights obligations for um, discrimination relating to things like sex and, and, and racism. 
Um, so that includes uh, all that created uh, legislation against um, sexual harassment in the workplace as, as well as other forms of, of sex discrimination. Uh, but we also have state and territory legislation, so things like the Equal Opportunity Act uh, in Victoria also outlaws um, sexual harassment in, in the workplace um, and you know, different workplace um, safety uh, legislation and the Fair Work Act also cover uh, harassment to varying degrees. Um, so lots of different things <laughs> for workplace harassment. Um, and interestingly, so the Human Rights, Australian Human Rights Commission has just finished doing a big inquiry into workplace harassment. And one of their findings was that it's actually really um, confusing for people who've experienced harassment because there are so many different systems potentially governing it and different avenues mm. for, for making a, a complaint and resolving issues. Um, so even though it might seem like a good thing that there's lots of different um, pieces of legislation in practice, it also makes things a bit messy. Um, so in relation to sexual offences, that's uh, handled at the state and territory uh, level, sorry, so all states and territories have legislation in place um, that makes it an offence to, uh, generally speaking, to engage in um, sexual activity with someone without their consent. Um, so there's different levels of offences, you know, I won't go into the differences across every single um, state and territory, but, you know, in general, there's, you know, things like indecent um, assault, which might include sort of sexualized touching, um, sexual assault, uh, which again might involve things like, like groping and touching people on the outside of, of their, their bodies. And then sexual assault or rape can also include penetrative um, offences. So again, that just varies across the particular state or territory. Typically rape refers to penetrative, penetrative offences. So whether it's mm. vaginal, anal, oral um, or digital um, penetration. So how well do these laws actually um, protect survivors? Um, I think the short answer is not very well. Um, mm. Firstly, we know that the vast majority of people, whether it's for sexual harassment in the workplace or for um, sexual offences, don't report in the first place. So for sexual offences, around 85% of survivors never report um, to the criminal justice system. And I would say that that's probably an underestimate um, as well. Mm, yeah. um, you know, in terms of why that's happening, it, it's really complex. There's a, a lot of different factors that um, play into it. Um, firstly, whether or not people actually recognise what's happened to them as constituting either harassment or assault. You know, there's a lot of myth, myths and misconceptions around what counts as sexual violence. And a lot of us tend to think that it has to be the most extreme, you know, physically violent thing for it to count. So for anything that doesn't kind of fit that stereotypical stranger jumping out of the, the bushes with a knife or whatever, um, yeah. we, we don't necessarily label it as, as counting. The criminal justice system is an incredibly re-traumatising um, process for the vast majority yeah. of victim survivors. Um, you know, we know that um, unfortunately people reporting to the police are still, um, can still be blamed for their experience or dismissed out of hand. Um, that's improved in some states. So in Victoria, for example, we do have specialist um, sexual offences units and, um, you know, that research has shown that that's improved the experiences of some survivors when they're reporting. Mm -hmm. um, but those specialist units are only available in, in some jurisdictions within Victoria. So there's no guarantee that you're going to report to someone with that, that um, expertise. Um, a lot of cases drop out at the prosecution stage um, because prosecutors decide that there's not sort of sufficient evidence to proceed with, with the case. We know that for the vast majority of sexual offences, it's often um, in a context where two people know each other, there's no other witnesses, um, they've often had some type of consensual sexual interaction before. Mm. Um, so it's one person's word against the other. It comes down to who's perceived as being more credible um, and it's incredibly, can be incredibly difficult to prosecute and get a successful conviction in, in those types of, of cases. Um, survivors are, you know, um, interrogated and questioned in very intimate detail about what's happened, both during mm. the investigation process, but then obviously again, um, during the, the court trial. It can be incredibly re-traumatizing. Going to court is often described as being like the second rape, um, particularly mm. the process of, of cross-examination. Yeah. So 
whole range of reasons. Um, I'm, you know, there's more I could go into there, but I think that gives you a pretty good picture. Um, and I think when we're talking about things like harassment in the workplace, we do see, I think, similar kinds of issues. Vast majority of people don't report. Um, people who do report, you know, a large minority um, are ostracized or experience negative ramifications. Um, you know, it's often not seen as worth it. Sometimes things that are seen as being too trivial or too minor to be worth reporting. It's just not worth the you know, energy of going through the process of reporting and whatever, um, you know, mediation processes or yeah. whatever might, might yeah. follow that. So yeah, massive, massive um, barriers. So what, why even have these laws? Like, <laughs> yeah. why, why do they even exist? Is it question. just a smoke screen? Like, yeah, I, I think that the intentions behind the laws are, are probably. I, I want to. I want to believe that they're good. And well <laughs> I, I have to believe that <laughs> to keep getting up in the morning. Um, and, and, in, and in some cases, you know, I think they do. You know, they can work successfully some of the time. It's just for the vast majority of cases, they absolutely don't. I think the other really big issue that we haven't touched on are the, the cultural issues. So mm -hmm. a big part of the reason that a lot of these laws aren't functioning as we might like is because of these cultural and, and social attitudes that continue to you know, minimise the seriousness of, of sexual harassment and, and sexual violence that continue to place blame on survivors for their own experience, that continue to minimise and downplay the actions of, of perpetrators so, you know, even if we have like on the face of it or on paper, um, some pretty good legislation in place, that's not to say it couldn't be improved, but, you know, mm. particularly in Victoria, for example, like we have some relatively progressive sexual offences legislation in place. We're going through another process of um, a law reform inquiry right now into our sexual offences legislation. So it might improve, you know, even further. Um, but even after, you know, decades of of reforms we haven't seen any changes in terms of survivors experiences in terms of you know rates of reporting um or, or anything like that um so that's perhaps saying that it's not just the legislation that's the problem mm -hmm. right it's the people mm -hmm. that are interpreting and enacting and you know responding to survivors so we really need to be looking at dealing with those broader um, cultural and, and attitudinal issues um, because we're going to have the best legislation in the world, but if people aren't, you know, interpreting it in good faith or, you know, able to you know, treat survivors in a supportive and respectful manner, um, you know, if we're not willing to hold perpetrators to account for their behaviour, mm. um, you know, that legislation isn't, just isn't going to be effective. If people can't access these systems, right, it's not, they're not going to be effective. So, Speaking of accessing, like I've tried to read the legislation, especially when looking into the, the Let Us Speak campaign and the gag laws, it's, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the problem, um, unless you're, you know, a legal expert or you have legal training. You know, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I definitely struggle reading through some of this legislation. Yeah. So I think for... You know, the average person in the community, it's really difficult to know um, what the law actually says. Um, yeah. You know, how, what processes are in place for reporting. Um, I think it can be incredibly confusing um, mm. to, to a lot of a lot of people and I don't think we do a good job of actually communicating to the general public you know what mm. our rights are um, how you go about making a complaint and, and so forth. Mm. So speaking about culture we had that uh, Four Corners episode come out that was portrayed to be a revelation <laughs> were you particularly surprised by it? No surprisingly enough I wasn't <laughs> surprised. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Then in positions um, of power, abusing their positions of power, never. Oh, I know. <laughs> Shocking. Never seen it before. Mm. Um, who would have thought? <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, no, I was not surprised. It fits with absolutely everything that we already know about sexual harassment in the workplace and, and sexual and gender-based violence more broadly. We already know that sexual harassment is more prevalent in workplaces that are male-dominated and that have, you know, cultures that are, are kind of hyper-masculine, um, competitive, where you know, women and um, LGBT people and, and other diverse communities aren't really seen as belonging or haven't traditionally, um, you know, had roles within, within those systems. 
um, we know that that creates a context where sexual harassment um, can, can flourish. Um, I think the parliament and the political system absolutely, you know, fills all of those characteristics. It's still male dominated, you know, perhaps less so than, than it used to be, but, you know, traditionally, I mean, it was exclusively male traditionally, you know, we still see women um, and you know, people of color and LGBT communities are underrepresented. Um, we've seen examples of shocking sexism and misogyny. I mean, Julia Gillard would be a classic example. I don't know if I even need to say more about that, right? You know, this yeah. is not, not a system that is um, friendly towards women. Yeah. I think it's mm. a, a system where you know, it's a very particular type of masculinity that's valorized within this system where, mm. um, you know, uh, it's very kind of jocular and, um, you know, if you look at, say, like question time in parliament, it's about, um, you know, being quite aggressive, competitive, um, mm. you know, if you can't handle the heat, you know, you can leave kind of mentality. Um, so, yeah, it, just everything about the system really... Uh, creates a context for um, sexual harassment to flourish. It's a very hierarchical um, mm. system where there are you know, very notable um, power disparities, particularly between say like MPs and their members of, of staff. Um, I think, you know, quite aggressive and bullying um, behavior seems to be tolerated in general mm. within the system. Uh, it's an incredibly competitive environment to actually, you know, get a, get a job within um so yeah. again i think that creates the expectation that you just put up with with bad behavior i know i think as we saw in, in four corners there's also that culture of what happens particularly in canberra stays in canberra so there's this culture of, of secrecy as well and that we don't kind of job on other people when they're engaging in behavior that might be you know a bit unethical if not against the law yeah <laughs> the laws that they create Exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> they create them, doesn't apply to them. Yeah. Oh, fucking fuckers. Seeing it as though they are the people that are in control of like policy and, and law, do you believe that the culture within parliament actually affects the laws that get passed down? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look, I don't have any hard evidence for this other than to say that it, you know, completely makes sense, right? And I, I think we have seen this in other elements of, of women's and you know marginalized communities lives that when it's mm. you know white cisgender middle and upper class men making the laws they tend not to reflect the needs and experiences of, of other people mm. um so yeah i do think that it it impacts um how we understand the issues and um how how they're responded to in policy and, and through legislation and then, yeah, like I said, even where we do have legislation that is on the face of it good and, and potentially quite progressive, the behaviour of people in our parliament and in politics is reinforcing a culture that directly undermines the operation of those laws and they're perpetuating a, a culture that we know underpins and facilitates the occurrence of sexual harassment and, and sexual violence. So, you know, even if the laws themselves are okay, we still see this incredibly counterproductive um, culture in place. Mm. I'm so sad right now. Look, it's pretty depressing. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> I've been thinking since, like, when we were talking about the culture stuff a bit earlier, it's it's brought back Brie Lee's book, Eggshell Skull. Yeah. Um, ab oh, that book was amazing. And in particular... Like when we talk about the split between legislation and culture and it's like just stories of trials and over and over again, what Breeley outlines is that they're, the lawyers in these cases are really just playing on stereotypes and, I, and these sexist ideologies that we have and also racist ideologies. Uh, yeah, and I just keep thinking like it's the same thing. If we have this culture in the government, then basically the legislation just feels like window dressing as a way to address these things that we have to show that we're caring about, but we're not actually putting the changes in place to make those legislation do anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think 
yeah, we see that again and again in, in sexual offences legislation. In the last round of, of legal reforms, we saw changes to like definitions of sexual consent, um, but also what the defendant has to, to show or prove in, in order to be found not, not guilty. So, so consent is based on this idea of a free agreement. So if a victim survivor didn't freely agree um, to the sexual acts, then that shows that there was a sexual act without consent. But that's only one component of the offence. So even if you can show that the survivor wasn't consenting, it also hinges on what the defendant or the accused person knew about the survivor's consent. Mm -hmm. So if they can show they had an honest and reasonable belief in consent, they can be found not guilty. Uh, And how that belief in consent is actually demonstrated is where we find a lot of those, you know, myths and stereotypes coming into play that completely undermine the purpose of the reforms that we've seen that are supposed to be showing or adhering to this idea of, you know, consent as communicative and, and active and, you know, everyone's freely agreeing and having a good time. So we'll see defence barristers using strategies like, you know, implying that the survivor was lying, you know, imp- implying that um, she consented at the time and is, you know, um, just saying that it was... A she just changed like, her mind exactly, and she regrets it now. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Or she's trying to get back at the defendant in, in some way or, you know, she'd been flirting with him or she'd been drinking or, you know, you see defendants saying, oh, well, she moved or she made a sound, therefore I thought she was <laughs> consenting. Um, Mm. So defendants don't actually have to, like, there's no onus on them. It's the onus is on the prosecution to demonstrate, Mm. right, that um, that that person knew or didn't have a reasonable belief that the survivor wasn't um, consenting. Um, So we've seen in Tasmania, for example, they've actually introduced legislation um, that does create more of an onus on the defendant to actually show what what reasonable steps they took. If they're going to throw it out there that they had this reasonable belief in consent, that they have to be able to demonstrate tangible steps that they took. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I would really like to see changed um, in, in Victoria. Um, but before the, just um, interestingly, before the last round of um, reforms in Victoria were, um, were passed, um, some colleagues and I actually did some research that tried to look at what the likely impact of, of the reforms would be. And unsurprisingly, um, a lot of our participants, particularly people in the sexual assault um, sector, but also just mem- uh, members of the general community, said, you know, well, what's reasonable? Like, this is just going to be reinterpreted mm. in a way that reinforces all of these myths and, and stereotypes, you know, precisely because there's, I mean, one, there's no consensus on what counts as a reasonable step. I think some people have some pretty unreasonable ideas about what's actually mm. reasonable, mm. right? Um, it doesn't create an onus. There's no kind of clear guidance on, you know, what sort of things might happen um, in an ethical and, you know, quote unquote, reasonable negotiation of of sexual consent. So Mm. I think these outcomes were entirely um, predictable. Um, And there is a challenge, right? Like the more that you specifically kind of name and label and constrain things in legislation, it does become very difficult then to actually apply it to particular Mm. cases or things can Mm. be interpreted in, and applied in, in problem, problematic or unintended ways. So there, mm-hmm. is a, there, is a, there are challenges there, right? Like I don't just want to totally slam the, the legal system as if this is a really easy thing to, to respond mm-hmm. to. Like there are very real challenges, but there are things that we, we could be doing, I think, to mm-hmm. you know, improve the system that we have. Um, but I think the other issue, I mean, as we spoke about earlier, most survivors aren't accessing the system and the system is very problematic in terms of perpetuating, you know, racism and other um, systems of repression. So I actually think, I mean, while I, I think it's important to make sure that the formal system is as safe and supportive as it can be for survivors who do want to go down that, that path, we need to be looking at alternative ways of actually responding um, to sexual harassment and, and sexual violence outside of, of the mainstream yeah. um, system. That's really interesting, actually, because, uh, I mean, I'm kind of just announcing something without permission, which might be bad, but I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> um, I've just had a meeting with the International Slut Walk committee we're, we're planning on doing a, a big action next year 
around the world. One of the things that we were discussing was a workshop around how, how to respond to people who are victim survivors and when they disclose. And I think workshops like that on a community level will help address this I suppose it's like a, a cultural issue that we have as well as a legal issue. And um, yeah, when we're talking about power structures and power dynamics, there's there's kind of a few different ones. Like obviously there's the legal issues, but also like who controls the law, but who controls the labor and who controls the cultural voice as well. And I think those are sort of the three main places where change needs to happen. And I think, I mean, personally, I think that a cultural shift needs to happen. Like the that um, article, Rough Justice, that was released by the ABC, I think earlier this year, talking about like the number of people that don't actually make it past talking to a cop. I don't know. I, I feel like the, we can't rely on the legal system in order to get justice. And by justice, I don't mean like you know, go to trial and he's found guilty. I mean, by justice, I mean like reform. No, yeah, <laughs> making sure that people who've perpetrated these behaviours actually understand why what they did was wrong and they're actually working towards you know, changing their behaviour and their attitudes. And there's no guarantee that that happens in the criminal justice system. Like you can be found guilty and go to jail and it doesn't mean that you accept that what you've done was wrong or that you ever no. change your behaviour or your or, attitudes, right? Or even understand, because mm. when you talk yeah. about something as complicated as consent, when you've been taught your entire life that you're entitled to women's bodies, trying mm. to understand that like women can feel uncomfortable when they're in that position like I just don't think men have that lens and I don't know if we can legislate that away no I don't think we can and yeah. you know the use of coercion and and force is actually really normalized in a lot of our sexual scripts around you know how <gasps> you <negotiate> sex. <laughs> don't even talk to me about that romantic notion yeah. of like she says no no she really wants it and then yeah. he like grabs her and kisses her and it's like this romantic moment. And I'm like, get fucked. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm exactly. Sorry. Um, but that, like, you know, like how if you're a, you know, if you're a guy and that's the message that you've got about this is how one mm. does sex and I'm entitled to, you know, if I put in nice points, I'm entitled to <laughs> a woman um, at the end of the day. The and- Ending oh, machine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just put your, your nice coins in and eventually <laughs> yeah. sex will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like there, there is some of the really like insidious and persistent messages that people get about sex. So, how is a, mm-hmm. like a, a particularly young man, but not only, like, how are you supposed to understand that what you've done is wrong when you're doing what you've been shown is mm-hmm. how you negotiate sex, right? Like, yeah. So, that's where that kind of cultural change and education is is so vital and that's not something that's going to be achieved through the law the law actually sets an incredibly low bar like for negotiating ethical sex particularly if you look at how the law is actually applied in practice even if you know like i said on legislation on on paper it looks okay um but when you look at you know cases that are like that actually go through the system um i mean there's so very very few convictions and you know, like you know, the Luke Lazarus case with or Saxon Mullins case would be a, a classic example where, you know, it was very clear that she wasn't consenting. And in fact, that was mm-hmm. found in the first trial. But, you know, on, on appeal, it was basically like, oh, no, it might have been reasonable for him to think you were consenting, like to forced anal sex in a dark alleyway. Like, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if we if we look at what the law actually does in, in practice, um, that's not the bar that you want to be using for your measure of whether something is mm. ethical mm. and consensual. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think what we're talking about is transformative justice. Yes, mm. absolutely. And, yeah, finding a way to talk to like not only women but young boys about what consent actually is. And I think if we do it from like a young age, like mm. make it a part of sex education. Essentially, mm-hmm. totally. Well, and it's also about you know changing our norms about sex, right? Like the idea that I'm, I mean, I'm talking particularly about heteronormative 
sex, but I don't, I don't mean to yeah. exclude LGBT people who also disproportionately experience sexual violence. But thank you. In um <laughs> in heteronormative encounters, um, you know, there's this idea that like sex is a competition. It's like a goal that you're, you know, trying to score. Is like, that why men always finish so quickly? Yeah. Got <laughs> 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 to get there first. <laughs> But do you know what I mean? Like, it's not this idea. Mm. I don't. I don't want to be too normative or prescriptive about like how one should do sex. But we're not exactly having a, a culture where it's about like feeling good, making your partner or partners, you know, feel good, mm. and or about like this mutually enjoyable and fun and like playful yeah. situation. It's like about getting mm. what you want at yeah. any cost. Women are viewed. And I say this quite often, sorry for repeating myself for anyone who actually listens to this podcast, but women are viewed as like sexual objects and uteruses first, mm. and then our bodily autonomy come like almost fifth or sixth. Yeah. Mm. Like yeah. it's just that, I think that's something that really needs to change within our culture. Totally. Uh, I think it is important that we talk about LGBT communities um, mm. as well. And I think you know, to a large extent, they're entirely ignored in our current yeah. like, sex education. And it's, it's really difficult to include LGBTQIA plus communities in these conversations because they're not actually included in the conversations. Exactly. So it's really, it's, it's, it's framed in that way, in that heteronormative way. And so when you're having this conversation, it's like, oh, well, I'm, you're not in, yeah, it's fucked, it's fucked. Especially yeah, when you're totally. talking about like, uh or bodily autonomy and reproductive rights and like people just go wild when you say like well men have uteruses too yeah mm. yeah they just yeah 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 we're not even at a point unfortunately where we can have a, an adult conversation about these things and you know unfortunately <laughs> we seem to be witnessing the increase of turf turfism is that a word I don't know it is it is now um that's making it a a very kind of polarizing um environment but you know one thing that I've heard like particularly from participants in my my research is you know how do you know what a healthy or consensual or ethical relationship looks like when your relationships aren't portrayed in culture they're not spoken Mm -hmm. about in you know in our education um so how do you know what's what's healthy or respectful or or ethical or how do you know when something isn't okay when sexual violence is framed as something that cis heterosexual men do to cis heterosexual women Mm, like you're just mm. entirely outside of the framework for like thinking about about these issues Mm. um and then when we're talking about something like say reporting to the police there's added layers of, of difficulty where the police have been and often continue to be a huge source of oppression and violence um, mm. against LGBTQIA plus um, communities and particularly at the moment against um, transgender communities. I hate cops so much. <laughs> Heteronormativity is such a poison, isn't it? It really, like, and it limits everyone's opportunities and experiences and like Mm. potentials for being Mm. in the world right Mm. like it's actually bad for all of us like in the same way that patriarchy is bad for all of us yeah yeah obviously heteronormativity is going to be more harmful to you know gender and sexuality Mm. diverse communities but it's not doing any of us like any benefits really like it's again helping to keep a very small um minority of people in power at the expense of literally everyone else Mm. yeah and when we like talk about reporting crimes and everything it's another one of those situations where the further you are from a heteronormative situation the more oppression you're going to face when you try and seek justice for anything like this exactly so yeah it's horrifying Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bianca Philiborn, and for your wisdom and your knowledge in sharing your research with us. I think it's really important that grassroots activists and academics and politicians all work together, not for the benefit of one particular group, but for the benefit of community. I think it's really important that we do combine those three very unique sets of skills. So up next, God, this is fucking weird. Um, up next, we've got Anna from Slutwalk Munich, who is going to talk about... Slutwalk in Munich. Anna is with us from Slutwalk. I don't know how to say it in German. München? München, yeah, right. Look at me, German speaking. (laughs) 
how long have you been organizing with them? I joined Slutwork Munich in 2016. Yeah, after I've been to the Slutwork in 2016, I joined them afterwards. It was that good. Or What? was it that? <laughs> Sorry. My Australian We're professionals here. <laughs> know, right, look at us. Like, was, was the rally that good? You were like, I have to get involved? Or was it that bad that you, you were like? Nice question. <laughs> uh, no, it was that good, really. Um, yeah. I, I saw the, the speakers. They were really touching. And I thought, like, I want to be a part of this movement. And I want to influence other people and um, have the same effect on other people that they had on me. That's when I decided to be a part of it. Isn't it an amazing feeling at the end of the rally when everyone's all together and they're celebrating and it's just like, I helped make this happen. I just, it's so awesome. Yeah. I love this Latvok community. It's just mm. like, I don't know, being a part of this just makes me, it's, it's wholesome. I yeah. think that's the right word. Yeah, it, it totally is. And especially when we get this like really bad rap of being like, you know, sluts and being naked down the street. But it's such an inclusive and supportive and wholesome community. Saying that, each country does have a slightly different context. I think Western culture is somehow always kind of similar. Mm. But what was a big issue in Germany was when there was the whole refugee <coughs> thing. Oh, sorry, my dog. Chewy, come here. We're talking about feminism, Chewie. We need to focus now. <laughs> so um, in Germany, we had the refugee issue, which was pretty um, severe that uh, there were a lot of refugees coming in. I think it was 2016 even. And um, people were kind of upset because they thought like they were bringing different values or they were having different values and they um, have other views about equality and stuff. And they kind of ignored that patriarchy uh, exists in Germany as well. And then that uh, we are not equal here as well. Um, and they kind of made that an issue, um, a, a refugee issue, a stranger's issue. Mm. Uh, so that was pretty difficult. It was like racist and sexist, um, both at the same time. So this was something that we were tackling um, in the beginning, like when I started to... Um, show that this is not a refugee issue, that this has always been that way in Germany. Mm. And only because now it's starting to show um, doesn't mean that it hasn't been there in the first mm. place. Yeah, yeah. Well, we also have that in common, racism, yeah. you know, victimizing refugees and immigrants. So that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, But I feel like this, the problems are in, the, in Western cultures are really quite similar, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's colonization and it's white supremacy and capitalism. They're, they're all so strongly linked. Maybe what's also kind of specific in Munich is we have the Oktoberfest, which is like mm -hmm. a huge event and people from all over the world are coming here. And it's like the typical German Bavarian thing, Bavarian culture, yeah. um, where it's like, it's pretty sexist and there are lots of uh, sexual violence going on there. There even, there's this uh, famous song. Um, it's like a, is it called folklore? Do we say that? I don't know. It's like a traditional song that is uh, always sung in the, in the beer tents. Um, and it's about raping a girl, basically. <laughs> That's like fun times, you know? <laughs> so there Yeah, it's a it's a song about how how a guy rapes a girl in his uh, in her sleep, and um, how she gets pregnant from that. And we have a lot of pretty rapey songs um, or like drinking sayings um, that are pretty rapey and violent. And there has been petitions against that, but it's just like totally normal that guys are sitting in the beer tent and drinking beer and just singing along these type of songs or drinking sayings, which is kind of a normalization. Not even kind of, it is a normalization. Wow. So yeah, that's maybe a little specific, like yeah. uh, more specific about Germany. Yeah, that's intense. Keeping in mind that there is, obviously sexual violence is very normalized. Um, how do they treat women who are, who are sexual or how, how do they treat women who call themselves sluts or feel empowered by the sexuality like are they victimized well obviously being a schlampe or a slut is not a good thing in germany mm. um but it's it's used 
either way like either you are sexually active or you're not as long as you are owning your sexuality you are a slut after mm. all but it's um i feel like germany is pretty prude when it comes to that we have like the um holy girls and the whores you know like mm -hmm. when you um yep. divide women into the categories and the whores. yeah yeah right yeah um that's pretty common here wow I, I, at least i feel like yeah, that's intense that there's that. I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's such a significant divide between like one moment you've got in a beer tent chants and songs about sexual violence and then when it's a woman who's owning her own sexuality and wants to actually consent to it, they're opposed to that. Yeah, totally. And we have yeah. like we have a huge porn culture in Germany. There's a lot of German porn going on or there's a huge culture of yeah, being sexual active you know mm. um or in engaging with women but on the other hand when they do it themselves it's uh they don't like it <laughs> the guys don't like it so it's it's kind of weird i don't get it well it's it's that power dynamic isn't it it's the like you were saying before if you say yes or if you say no you're always a slut because it's about who's in control of the sexuality and then heaven forbid you also profit from your sexuality yeah that's totally. just going against capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy. Like we're not we're not supposed to be the ones in control. But um, when in doubt, always say no because German guys don't like girls that have a lot of experience. What? <laughs> Why would you want a sexual partner that had no experience? Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, when I'm at the doctor and I have to get my appendix removed, I'm not like, oh, I want to be the first. I'm choosing someone who has done it many times. <laughs> so, that's the same I with want your this dick, to be maybe. a special <laughs> moment for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'd rather have a partner who's experienced and know what he or she is doing. Mm. Um, so you said you've been involved since 2016 in the organizing team. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any sort of cultural or systemic changes in your time? Yeah, actually, I have. That's oh, cool. kind of interesting. Awesome. Because, yeah, um, we have the, the <clears throat> there was a transformation of the, of the law when it comes to sexual violence. Like uh, before, how do I say it? We have now the law that no means no, because before that, no didn't really mean no. You had to be either, I think, physically threatened or you had to um, physically um resist against it so only saying no didn't like it wasn't enough basically yeah. to yeah. to make the rape count now we have the no means no law which is on the on the one hand it's kind of good right. on the other right. hand that it was an invented kind of because of the refugee crisis because we had on on new year's eve there was this incident where a lot of men were kind of groping and harassing women in Köln in Cologne mm -hmm. and they were mainly refugees so then politics was like oh my god we need a new law <laughs> because of that and I was like yeah we need it <laughs> for years now <laughs> but okay um I mean we got it and still it doesn't I mean I'm more a fan of the yes means yes rule mm. than the no there's like they don't really have any neighbors and in Germany we are as I said in the central mm -hmm. of Europe and we have lots and lots of sex work going on here and human trafficking and we just we just can't put on the same rules <laughs> as, a, as a country that's basically alone up there but also if you have sex work legal then it's much easier to spot the illegal network there will be no market because it's free and accessible and even the, the sex workers that are working will be able to spot out who's who's in a situation where they're not consenting to sex work i don't get it because as a we have uh, this activist in Germany, she's called Huschke Mau, and she's been a sex worker. And she has uh, written all of these texts that are really emotional, really personal. And she writes about her experience, how she was uh, raped and violated by her customers. I, I don't mean to um, take this away from her, but she's like um, the loudest voice on this. And she states things like um, every sex work is rape and every client who's who's doing that is a rapist and that's just uh, people are listening to her and i don't get it because her experience are important we yeah, need to absolutely. protect sex workers more we need to do something there but change shouldn't be to yeah to, to make it illegal like i don't no. get it and she sounds very traumatized like that's that is a literally awful experience for her yeah no i can totally appreciate where she's coming from 
because of her experience, she shouldn't be limiting other people's rights. I feel yeah. like sometimes when people speak on behalf of what other people should do with their bodies, I'm like, how are you any different to those folk out the front of family planning clinics and abortion clinics telling other people what you can do with your body? How are sex totally. worker, exclusion, radical feminist any different to pro-lifers? It's the same principle. It's the same. Totally. There's just been one thing um, about that. I, I think it's off topic, but I just had the thought because I was asking myself when it's your body, your choice, how does feminism see that when it comes to eating disorders? Yeah, I've had that um, because I used to work in eating disorders. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I asked, I've been asking myself this question like for years now and I still don't get an answer because it's just so... So, yeah, <laughs> overwhelming. No, I, 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 don't know. I understand where that comes from. But the, the difference with eating disorders is that people who are affected by the disorder, they're not actually in control of their own body. Their disorder is in control. of. It's almost like an auditory hallucination that's, that's creating all these rules and telling them like, you know, really negative comments about their body and what they're eating and what they can eat, what they can't eat. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating disorder and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It's, it's horrific. But I think that the difference between it's your body, your rules, um, when someone's affected by an eating disorder, yeah, what, what they put in their mouth isn't actually their choice. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's, um, Thanks for enlightening me. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Um, yeah, I, I loved my time. <laughs> it feels like a weird thing to say. I loved my time in eating disorders. It's really bizarre. But I, um, I worked, and this is funny because the, the young women and the young men that I actually supported through their, through their mental illness um, are some of the most incredible people I think I will ever meet in my life. They are so smart and are considerate of everyone else except themselves. I just, I really wish that they could actually see themselves through the eyes of other people because they're incredible. And the fact that they can live their lives with this disorder as well is just, it's like they are the strongest people and they, they have no idea. They have absolutely no idea how incredible they are. Um, but going back to thought walk. <laughs> um, <laughs> What, what do you think we need to see happen sort of culturally or systemically for slut walk to no longer exist? Oh, God. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> I feel like there's, uh, the more I get to, um, the more I, I get into all this political stuff, the more I see what needs to change. And I just don't see any end of it somehow. I mean, the slut walk movement is a pretty specific movement when it comes to feminism because it is kind of focused on sexual violence so it may not be that far away to to reach a point but I still feel like um stuff like racism capitalism um all these all these power dynamics that exist in the world need to change and I don't see that happen anytime soon to be honest no <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I sometimes wonder, like, because you're exactly right, Slut Walk is such a small part of a broader movement, As, especially when we talk about legal systems. I mean, I, I can't speak for Germany, but in Australia it feels very much, um, it's very patriarchal and it protects men and it protects perpetrators of abuse. We have things like defamation laws where you, if you speak out on about a sexual harasser or a rapist, um, and they're like in public profile, uh, if you cause them like an earning loss or if there's like impact to their to their reputation or something like that or their employability, then you have the potential to be sued. What? Yeah, even though what you're saying is correct and it's true, you, you risk defamation laws. So that means that there's currently a man who is running I think he tried to run as mayor and he tried to run in a socialist party and yeah, no one can actually say his name because they're worried of, you know, being sued, which we can't afford. Yeah. And he's quite an angry, violent man. So cool. 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 We had a similar case in Germany where there was this it girl, party girl, famous person um, who was kind of known to be um, slutty, you know, and a, in a 
Enjoy in the best positive way. way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with being a slut? I wish we could cancel it as a slur. Like imagine someone yeah. enjoying consensual sex and that being a bad thing. It's just yeah, bizarre. totally. Sorry. I'm just con- concerned because the, the listeners can't see my, what is it Your called? quotation marks. Yeah, my quotation marks, right? <laughs> so, so there was this party girl and she um, was raped by two of her friends and there was a video taken from that and she yeah and she sued them and it was on it it, it still is on Pornhub I think which is kind of bizarre and I've seen it because I yeah I I've seen it because they dropped all the charges because they were saying like yeah she knew them and she's known for having a wild sexual life so um they dropped all charges and I've I've seen the video because I I was kind of curious like how can you film a rape and not get like any consequences from that? Mm-hmm. And it's so clearly that she doesn't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. She says it several times. And then they sued her for money. Um, and she has to pay, I think, 40,000 euros to them for image uh, for damage. Or... Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah for damage to their image. Time that something like this happened in Germany. That was a huge outrage. And it yeah. was, I think, three years ago now. I remember about, oh, God, it might have been like 10 or something years ago, uh, there was a football player who took a photo of like a bikini model or something when she was in the shower. The photo of her was her covering her breasts and putting her hands out and clearly saying no, and that got spread everywhere and it even got like printed in the media and stuff. The con- the conversation wasn't about this was sexual violence. The conversation was around the fact that she was a bikini model. We've seen it all before with zero understanding of consent it was disgusting it still is disgusting yeah there's uh, there are these memes on on nine gag for example and uh, on websites like that you know when there's like um girls in underwear and then you see them in underwear and they're like no don't take a picture of me and then girls in a bikini and they're like proud to show their body like where's the difference and like it's consent maybe yeah (laughs) why is it so hard to to understand the difference I, i i mean just entitlement entitlement and they all they see is a body and they don't see someone saying yes and someone saying no this is really depressing okay we have to finish on something really positive I can't think of anything right now (laughs) when's when's your next slut walk have you done one for this year we have been doing a small one because of all the corona regulations it wasn't possible to make a big one um but it was pretty pretty good we um even had a camera team there which was filming us and making a short little documentation about us like five minutes i think and it was fun and it still kind of brought back the slut walk feeling and but it also felt like a warm-up we were one hour in the city and after the one hour we were like yeah and now let's go (laughs) but it was over already (laughs) such a shame yeah, after because we had our radio show on Sunday, which is like our, our rally was broadcast over a local radio station called 3CR, who are incredible and we're so grateful to them. Um, and it was like that as well. It was just like, right, well, um, <laughs> what do we do now? It was really bizarre. I'm like, usually I'm like carrying signs and I've got placards and, you know, like a the wheelie trolley that's got all the the marshals bests and the first aid kits and all the lanyards for the volunteers and stuff and I'm just like I don't have anyone to debrief I don't know what I'm doing let's just go to the pub but it was really weird at the pub because it was quiet and but it was great because I think the most important thing is that no matter what we don't stop yeah we do and I'm really excited for next year I don't know um, how it's going to be we don't have like a specific motto yet and we don't know how the whole corona situation is going to end up but I'm really looking forward to it and I'm so glad we're connected with Melbourne now yeah like it's a worldwide movement and we should all be connected and always talking and sharing stories like I learned so much from your team like just about like um just different different contexts and different nuance and different understandings of the word slut for example like it was fantastic so yeah yeah likewise okay well thanks so much for your time and um thanks for having me i'm it was really great talking to you thank you so much and yeah i'll speak to you soon bye bye take care it really cannot be stated enough
how awesome the slut walk community is especially this uh, international movement that we've got going at the moment we were in a meeting trying to plan something out and someone disclosed their assault and it was just safe and it really cannot be emphasized enough how important it is to have community around you where you can disclose and you can talk about this stuff without worrying about being blamed or shamed for your abuse um so yeah we've got a speaking panel coming up in april for the international slut walk movement um it's called what's in a name and we're going to be looking at the the power of reclamation of language um has slut walk achieved that have we reclaimed that slur it has been 10 years since the movement began and what what's been good what's been not so good um and we're inviting uh two slut walk organizers and uh, someone who does, and a researcher in sexual violence, as well as a sociolinguist to have this discussion. And essentially at the end of it, we hope to, like, do we need to change our name is essentially the point of this. Um, Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be really cool and super interesting. Uh, We obviously can't have this conversation without people of colour. You can't talk about language reclamation you can't talk about these topics without considering race class and power you just it's impossible um yeah feminism without intersectionality is nothing so we hope to bring some intersectionality sorry this is really awkward talking to myself also international women's day have released the poster for the rally this year it's happening on march 8th at 2 p.m at parliament house and we're marching to the state library i can't tell you who the speakers are but they're fucking amazing and i'm super pumped yes anyway um there's some really cool demands that have been put out and a really cool poster that includes a trans symbol and a non-binary symbol and the women's symbol with the raised fist pissing off the turfs and it just just brings me joy (laughs) to make turfs annoyed um hopefully this means that they don't show up they might and if they do please come down and support our community um and make sure it's safe for our trans friends and for our sex worker friends because they deserve to have equal rights and equal pay and to feel safe at work and not be harassed just like everyone else incredible fucking hate turfs and swears anyway If I were Carly, what would I say? Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to leave us a review and give us five stars. And even if you didn't like it, give us a nice review and give us five stars.